Welcome to Doorknob Comments. I'm Dr. Farah White. And I'm Dr. Grant Brenner. Thank you for joining us on Doorknob Comments, a podcast that we created to discuss all things involving mental health. We take the view that psychiatry is not just about the absence of illness, but rather the positive qualities, presence of health, and strong relationships, and all the wonderful things that make life worth living. The show is named for a phenomenon that sometimes happens at the end of a therapy session, when the patient may mention something important or something they're conflicted about right as they're walking out the door. Sometimes they may have been quietly thinking about it the whole session without saying anything at all. Equal parts frustrating and intriguing, it leaves the therapist holding the emotional bag. Today, we're going to be talking with a very dear friend and respected colleague, uh, Vicki Glahowski, about CBT. Hi, everyone. Hi, Vicki. Hey, Grant. Good to have you. And it is good to finally be here. We've been talking about doing this show for a long time, yeah. so I'm glad we're finally doing it. Me too. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> so what does CBT stand for? Cognitive Behavior Therapy. And I could talk, please stop me, because I could talk for a long time about how that term has evolved, what C- cognitive therapy is, what behavior therapy is, what CBT is. Um, there's a whole alphabet soup of different kinds of cognitive and behavioral therapies out there. Very cool. How's that different from, like, regular talk therapy? Well, what I like to always start with is to tell people that CBT is different from more traditional therapies in a couple of ways. One, in how we conceptualize a patient, and two, what we actually do in a a session. Um, And I can start by maybe talking about how we conceptualize or some of the theory of CBT. Um, Would you want me to go back to the very beginning, who developed CBT? I think that would be – I mean, I've never really – heard the full story. A brief history of CBT. Yeah. Wait, even in yeah. all, all the time we've worked together. Yeah. I feel like it's important for me to mention that you and Grant were both at one time my supervisors. <laughs> and here we are years <laughs> later. So Aaron Beck. Aaron Beck, who was my mentor, who is still um, thriving, still publishing, doing research at the age of 97. Um, and I always say when I'm doing training that when I'm working with um, graduate students or residents, I always like to say, you know, there are many reasons why you should pick your therapeutic school of choice, you know, what uh, resonates with you, kind of how your my own mind works, your own experiences. But I have to say, cognitive behavior therapists, we have a great track record of longevity. <laughs> so that's one reason. If, if you can't decide, we yeah. have a great track record of longevity. So Aaron Beck actually um, – He's a psychiatrist, and he um, interestingly started out as an an analyst. And not a lot of not everyone knows the story of how cognitive therapy developed. So, Aaron Beck um, set out to prove early in his career that depression was caused by anger turned inward, um, which is a you know you all know more about psychoanalytic theory than me, but that's a big core piece of psychoanalytic theory. So Beck thought back in the day, probably in I think 1960s. He was going to prove that depression was caused by anger turned inward, and he, was, he started this by studying the dreams of depressed patients. Um, and he thought, wow, I can't really, um, because this is all unconscious processes, I can't really um, you know, just interview a patient. I have to look to their dreams because that's where the truth is going to be. So he starts interviewing his patients about their dreams, and he realizes they all have common themes, these very severely depressed patients. All the dreams reflected themes of self-loathing. I'm a loser, I'm a failure, I'm unlovable. And through that work, that came to see that what he was really was identifying was the patient's thoughts. And that when people have certain kinds of thoughts, depressed thoughts, they're going to be depressed. When they have anxious type thoughts, they're going to be anxious. And so 
um, Beck did not start out trying to start a whole new form of psychotherapy. Um, and he actually, of course, broke off with the um, psychoanalytic tradition through his early work on, on dreams. Um, he launched the whole model um, when uh, I think he was in New England at the time. He came to University of Pennsylvania. Uh, kind of the hallmark book that started all of cognitive therapy was his uh, book, um, Cognitive Therapy for Depression, which was published in 1979. And at the time, um, as Beck was doing his early research um, down at Penn, um, we like to say that everyone who was depressed learned to flock to Philadelphia. Um, <laughs> well, do... That sort of explains <laughs> I do love Philadelphia. I'm not trying to bash it. But so all these people were coming to Philadelphia because they heard about this great new treatment for depression. Um, and Beck's original model, it was 12 to 16 sessions. People were doing really, really well. But as the model um, got more famous and word spread, more and more challenging people came to Philadelphia. Um, and Beck and his colleagues were realizing, wait a minute, slow down. We can't treat all these people with 12 to 16 sessions. And then that next generation of cognitive therapists and researchers who worked with Beck started to develop more interest in personality disorders and the application of CBT, at that point cognitive therapy, to the um, more um, difficult-to-treat patients. So that launched that second model. So I'm sh- I'm not even sure I answered the original question. I think you did. <laughs> well, you were going to talk about the origins of CBT. So here we here we have them. Right, yeah. it was back in Philadelphia. Um, so one of the others. Beck is brilliant in many ways. You know, he launched this whole model, but what he also did is he did research on it because he knew I have to not just think that this is going to help my patients. I have to prove it. So he started to do um, research when he was at Penn, many, many, many clinical trials showing the efficacy of CBT um, in short-term, for short-term access one disorders. Um, In addition, what he also did, and this was revolutionary at the time, he wrote these books that anyone could learn CBT. They're cookbooks, basically. And my understanding, maybe you all can address this, this was novel, and this was uh, really changed the game and how we do, how we teach psychotherapy um, and training programs around the world now because anyone can pick up some of those books and learn to become a cognitive therapist. And at the same time, some of his early trainees then decided to write the popular books for anyone to read. So we have clinicians learning CBT and we have patients walking into Barnes & Noble at those days and finding books on CBT and that they could learn to help themselves. Of course, we all know for some people it's not enough to read a book. They would read the book. They would get interested in CBT. Then they would follow through and start to find cognitive therapists in their community. And that's how the model really launched. The other thing I want to say about Beck is because he was my mentor, the other thing that I think really you know, kind of um, kept CBT going for so many years is Beck himself as a model of how to mentor and how to train and how to teach. Um, he even now... Um, incredibly enthusiastic about training, incredibly enthusiastic about teaching. Um, and I think he modeled how to mentor. And I think that's also why the model flourished. Um, because all of us who trained with him, you know, learned from him, not just how to do CBT, but how to, how to teach our trainees. He, d- he doesn't sound like a shrinking violet. What's he like in person? He's very um, mild, soft-spoken, um, 
you know, I remember once many years ago being on a plane with him. Um, we were coming back from some conference and – This is fear of flying. <laughs> That's In vivo funny. exposure therapy. Exactly. That would have been awesome for some random person on that flight. It was, it was coming back from a psychology conference. So the whole – half the plane was shrinks. Right. The other half was regular people. But, you know, I remember being on this flight with him and he's just this regular kind of unassuming guy. Um, but very um, warm, nurturing, kind, but not at all narcissistic, very low-key. So if someone if someone were seeking treatment for CBT, what sort of tools would you teach them right off the bat? So um, from the first session, no, not even. And Farah, you probably remember this from okay. supervision meetings. From that first phone call with a patient, I want them to know this is something different. I'm going to give them homework from that first phone call. So um, – the tools I'm going to teach them when they walk in that door, um, they're going to be focused on tools that teach them how to identify and change their thoughts, tools that focus on how to change and modify their behaviors, and then tools that focus on emotion-focused techniques as well. Um, so, you know, one of the ways that CBT is different than other models, there's so many differences, but one of the differences is it's a very active um, kind of therapy. It's driven by giving patients homework. I say to clients in that first phone call, this is about a teaching and training model. Think of me more as you would a music teacher or, um, you know, if you went for sports or tennis lessons, it's, it's I can teach you these strategies. We're going to build up a toolbox together, but you're then going to go forth and use those tools. I think it would be re really interesting to hear about what are the types of conditions, because I know that it was started to treat depression. Mm -hmm. But I feel like CBT or CT could be an answer to a lot of the things that people are grappling with these days, For phobias, sure. addictions, yep. you know, that type of thing. Can you talk a little bit more about what would respond? You know? Right. And that's a great question. So, you know, again, Beck started with depression. Very quickly, he and that early cohort of colleagues and researchers, you know, went through almost every, if you think, axis one disorder, right? So there's the depressive disorders, there's anxiety disorders. Um, all of these respond phenomenally well to short-term and true short-term therapy. This is the 12 to 16 to 18 session kind of therapy. Right. It, it might be worth just letting listeners know because not, not everyone in our audience is a uh, professional that in psychiatry, though I think they changed it recently, yeah. there's axis one, axis two, axis three, axis four, and axis five. And axis one are diagnosed conditions like depression and anxiety. Axis two is personality disorders and developmental disorders. Axis three is general medical conditions like thyroid. And then four and five are, are assessments of function, basically. Yeah, that's great. I should clarify that. Right. So we have depression. We have the different types of anxiety disorders, mm -hmm. phobias, absolutely, panic disorder, absolutely, OCD, um, social phobia, uh, uh, straightforward phobias like a flying phobia, a dog phobia, elevator phobia. Fly, flying dog phobia. Flying dog less, phobia. Less that, that would be terrifying, yeah. right? <laughs> or funny. Um, so CBT has been shown to be extremely effective in the treatment of these problem areas. And this is not just me, you know, coming up with this. There's been, you know, wide-scale research, and it's been replicated time and time again. Um, Beck always had said for many years kind of the final frontier was the use of CBT for schizophrenia, um, for disorders like that. And um, I want to say probably in the past decade or so, 
we've kind of crossed that fine, we've broken that final frontier. There's tremendous research, particularly in the UK, that's been done over the last decade or so, looking at the use of CBT um, for the treatment of schizophrenia. Um, we are big fans of medication and CBT, but some of those symptoms of schizophrenia, like the negative symptoms, kind of um, withdrawal from others, poor social skills, um, not being able to kind of take care of the activities of daily living, CBT has been shown to be extremely effective um, in that, you know, and if, it makes sense, right? We're looking, teaching people how to change their behaviors, how to change their situations, to examine their thoughts. Um, it's, that's not a 12 to 16 um, session intervention, but, um, but over time it can be effective as well. That can help people to cope with negative hallucinatory voices. And that, that can be a piece of it as well, right? We always think of medication as um, targeting those straightforward um, hallucinations, um, even delusions. But CBT can help with that as well. You could very systematic over many, many meetings, teaching the person how to think about their experiences differently. Something like they would learn to make a distinction between a symptom and who they are as a person or develop a thought process internally that allowed them to cope better or what would be a typical intervention? So um, there's a bunch. We would, first of all, in CBT, I always like to, um, I think people have certain myths about what CBT is and isn't. I think one myth is that we don't, we're very mechanical. We're very rote. Um, um, and that's not true at all. So I'm bringing it up here as we talk about schizophrenia or uh, delusional disorders because they are first and foremost, you have to have a phenomenal therapeutic relationship, a, a real connection with the patient. I mean, I think you need that no matter what, but particularly, you know, if someone has uh, paranoid, paranoid beliefs or um, feel that they're being persecuted, that's going to slowly develop over time that connection. So there you can really start to look at, once you have that alliance rapport established with the patient, start to look at teaching them how to think about their situations differently. So, you know, um, so let's say a person has this belief that... Um, my boss is out to get me. Now, we sometimes hear that in people who don't have delusions, but let's say the person really has a, a delusional problem. You can go through very systematically, how can I think about my boss as accurately as possible? What evidence do I have that my boss is out to get me? What evidence do I have that my boss can be trusted? Um, how am I doing at my workplace? So, yes, I have these very fixed beliefs, but is there any wiggle room in my beliefs? And how would I behave in a workplace if I thought my boss could be trusted? How would I behave if I thought my boss couldn't be trusted? What's an appropriate level of um, kind of professional distance from a boss? What's, what's too, taking it too far? So you can really work very systematically with a patient in that way. That's just one example. So there's a Reality orientation. For sure. That's a and, huge piece of what we do. And a lot of mental simulation and testing. Mm -hmm. Testing out of evidence, beliefs, um, hypotheses. And we like to say to our um, patients from that first session, we're like scientists here. We're teaching you not, not power of positive thinking. I hate when people think that's what CBT is about. It's being logical, systematic, rational. Um, let's collect some evidence. You know, let's collect some data. And, and a big piece of CBT is doing homework, you know, trying these things out between the sessions. I like to say this is other models of therapy might think that therapy session is the most important um, hour of the patient's week. In CBT, we don't believe that. Out there, your real life, go practice what we've talked about and then come back and report in. Same thing like a piano lesson. If you're not practicing during the week, you're not going to learn to play the piano. 
practice, bring it in, we build on that. Mm-hmm. Neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. Yep. The brain has to change. Yep. That is interesting, and I love hearing about, you know, new uses for CT, CT. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, let's say, someone wanting to change their behavior, um, if someone, you know, I think people very commonly struggle with addiction mm-hmm. to online shopping or massage Absolutely. parlors yep. or something like that, yep. um, does it change, you know, when you bring in the behavioral piece? Like, Absolutely. Yeah. And so... Um, what I think you're, some of those examples you're describing really fall under the category of what we call impulse control, okay. right? Now, every I think almost everyone has some kind of habit that they want to break, right? There's habits that are a little bit problematic, a little bit annoying, and then there are habits that really then start to fall into the range of impulse control real problems. So I'm assuming most people have bought something online that they really didn't need, they don't really love, maybe they'll spend a little bit, and then there are people who really can't stop that behavior. Um, so... CBT, interestingly, the the original treatment of CBT for substance um, disorders, alcoholism, um, um, excess smoking weed, other substance use problems, we actually borrow from that um, model or protocol to treat these kind of more um, problems in almost daily living, you know. Now, someone who overspends a little bit or maybe watches a little bit, too much porn, you know, that maybe they're having some trouble with their partner, that that person may not show up in our therapy office. But okay. the, some, the person who can't control their spending or is uh, watching porn at work and is danger of losing their job, hopefully that person's going to come to our office before uh, too much damage has been done and we can walk through them very systematically, different points of intervention. Um, there's a range of ways we can change people's thoughts. There's a range of levels of cognition we can change. And you know, I always like to say CBT is not rocket science. It is so straightforward, so easy to implement. Hard work? Absolutely. Do you have to do the work consistently? For sure. Um, but anyone can learn CBT, um, and it can help such a wide range of problems. It's amazing. Yeah. Are there any concepts that you can describe? I, I'm, I'm remembering my CBT experience and thinking about things like schemas and oh, yeah. scripts and um, reassessing emotional states after identifying different unhelpful thinking styles or cognitive distortions. Mm-hmm. Can you spell out for listeners a couple of the basic frameworks for understanding how the mind is working? Yep. So what you're um, describing is actually where we started today talking about kind of what happened in Philadelphia, right? Mm-hmm. So. When, what we do when a new patient comes into CBT, we start with what's called an automatic thought. What's the thought that's going through my head today, yesterday, um, that's, that's really leading to a shift in my mood in the here and now? Um, so what we believe is that there are different levels of cognition or thought. The first level, the most straightforward or simplest level, is that automatic thought. So let's say... Um, the example I like to give, let's say you get an email or a text from your boss that says, come see me. Person number one might have the automatic thought, uh, I did something wrong, I'm going to get fired. And that person, that thought leads to the emotion of, let's say, anxiety or worry. Person B maybe has the thought, I'm getting a raise. And their mood is going to be joyful. Um, and then there are different behaviors that go along with those thoughts, right? So thoughts influence mood and behavior. That's what we always start with. That's our foundation, basic model of CBT. But there are different levels of cognition and um, behavior. So person number one who thinks I'm going to get fired, they feel anxious 
They might avoid calling the boss back. They might start working on their resume. Those are the behaviors that go along with it. Person B who thinks I'm going to get a raise, maybe they go do some online shopping. Maybe they, you know, call their partner up to, you know, make a dinner reservation. Those are very different kinds of behaviors. And they might call that boss back or, you know, reach out to the boss immediately. Those automatic thoughts don't kind of happen in isolation. This is where we get to the real richness of CBT, um, that what we believe is there are these underlying beliefs or what we call core beliefs or schemas. Now, CBT focuses on the here and now. We don't ignore the past, um, which is also another myth of CBT, just point that out, <laughs> that um, other models focus on early events and maybe start there. CBT, we start with the here and now, but then I'm curious, wait, why did person A think they're going to lose their job and why did person B think they're getting a raise? So I want to start to kind of excavate or uncover What's going on for these people underneath that surface thought? What's their basic thinking or their schema or core belief about themselves, the world, relationships? And that's where then we might turn and start to look at, you know, what, what happened to them early on in life? You know, what were some of their experiences? Um, so I don't know if I answered that question, but it's certainly kind of explaining how we conceptualize people in CBT. Did you have an automatic thought about how I thought you answered that question? <laughs> that could get very, like, slippery slopish. I had the thought, the automatic thought, yeah, I don't know that I answered his question. Um, quickly followed by my next automatic thought, I love talking about CBT so much I could just talk about it for many hours, um, which I'm inclined to do. I, You know, especially with two people who are, you know, actually I'm, I'm a big fan of pragmatic approaches. I do a lot of coaching. I yeah. use a lot of CBT I often tell patients, you know, what you understand from the past, that that's helpful, but it doesn't necessarily automatically cause change. Absolutely. Some people, it does, I think, if they have the capacity to sort of respond to that recognition of their developmental history. But for a lot of people, it can, it can cause distress or just be kind of an interesting fact that doesn't lead to any change. So I'm, I'm not actually antagonistic to CBT. Um, I'm not sure about Dr. White, though. No, I – well – Loved working with you. Yeah. Well, this has been so much, fun. and that's what I love about working with people from different right. orientations. Yeah. Right? It's not either or. You can integrate them. Yeah. But one thing that I always do that you taught me is to really check in with people in terms of their anxiety level, like around. Okay, mm. well, what would it be if you? How would you feel if you added something to your cart but you didn't order it? Yeah. Or um, and especially because I do a lot of work with new moms, I'm kind of like trying to assess. Where their stress level would mm -hmm. be. What if the nanny is late? What if she takes the kids to McDonald's, mm -hmm. but you're only want them to have organic food? Yeah. Like, you know. And Wait, hold on. McDonald's <laughs> isn't organic. <laughs> but there's a belief system shattered right here. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it that was just so valuable for me because I'm, I would say, maybe a little more, like, analytic a and just kind of, like, yeah, going with the She's flow. a mystic. And, yeah. and, yeah, it's really, I think, enlightening for me to see, like, what are these scenarios? And then also because I do the medication piece, yep. like, it's really hard to know how people are reacting to stuff in their everyday life, like, outside of session. Because yep. in session... You know, What's well, like it's a different. vacuum. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But one of the things I like about CBT, which I think is also more typical of the psychoanalytic training I had in interpersonal psychoanalysis, which is more pragmatically oriented and more interactive, is there's a certain uh, level of candor. 
and it's like we're here to work on a project together, huh. mm-hmm. and we're going to look at your thoughts. And it's not I, I joke that you're a mystic, but it's not mystified. It's actually demystifying. Absolutely. Yeah, and I want to keep keep it very simple. You know, um, if I may remember this, you know, CBT, we're big in drawing pictures. So we have a cognitive triangle of depression. So, you know, and again, just think about it. We're talking very academically here. Think about Mr. Smith or Ms. Jones. They've been depressed or they have a substance abuse problem and they're devastated. And I want them to see, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I think we're all, I hope we're all, in, no pun intended, we're, I hope we're all in the business of teaching people to have hope. Um, so Mr. Smith, Ms. Jones comes to me, they've been depressed for years, and I draw a picture of a triangle. Am I being dismissive or simplifying? Hell no. I'm teaching them to look at it accurately, that when someone's depressed, we think they have negative thoughts about themselves, their environment, or their personal world, and their future. And it's so... Um, a, it's validating as a shrink, but B, I think it gives the patient such a sense of hope that, you know, all these thoughts are jumbled in my head. My life is miserable. I don't understand. Let's just start to break it down into these three concrete arenas. Um, there's something very powerful in that. Or so-and-so comes in with a substance abuse problem. I think um, the way we think about substance abuse, I have seven or eight boxes. I teach them of how to, how do we think about, you know, what's activating that substance use in the moment or that overspending, let's say. What's that last step before you pick up the weed or hit the, you know, um, buy in your shopping cart? You know, what can we do there? And that each step has a range of, um, each step has a range of, um, techniques that we can teach the person and it's very specific and concrete and I just have to ask because you're someone who really could have done anything and I think would have been at the top of any field why did you choose CBT? A, I disagree (laughs) but thanks Um, I have to rethink those yeah exactly Sports star, like no, Broadway no. star, you know. But, but thank you. Well, yeah. interesting. I don't even know if we ever talked about this. My mother actually, boy, this could be a landmine. <laughs> she was getting her PhD when I was growing up. <laughs> it took her a lot of years because <laughs> she had three <laughs> kids. I'm going to get a pad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so first of all, there were all the house was always filled with her graduate school textbooks. No kidding. Yeah, I, had, I never, you never knew, knew that. that. Right. Yeah. And she's actually a, um, a school psychologist and works with kids. Um, but there were always these books at our home, and she would have her study groups over, and it was fascinating to me. Like, what? And, you know, um, I'd pick up her books, read her books, and that's kind of how I got interested in psychology. And then when I went to college, I went to Penn, which is where Beck was, is, and um, my first semester of college, I started working with Marty Seligman, who cre- who um, developed the idea of learned helplessness, um, and he was my mentor in my college years. Beck literally was down the street, so I didn't meet Beck until later, but Marty Seligman was my mentor from when I was 18 years old. And in those years, his research was really looking at attribution theory. He had done his research on learned helplessness, I want to say maybe 15 to 20-ish years earlier, um, and he was really interested in how people explain um, what happens to them? How does that affect their mood? So he um, wasn't a plant developing treatment of depression. Beckett was already doing that um, some years earlier, literally down the street. But Penn, so I went to school, to college, already wanting to be a psych major. I started working with Seligman, learning about attribution theory and how incredible it is how people explain what happens to them, the positive and the negative events affects you know, their well-being. It affects, we were doing really cool um, 
projects looking at, um, oh, I mean, that lab was phenomenal. So it was looking at um, insurance salespeople. People, it's a really, you know, you do a lot of cold calling, a lot of um, dead ends, you know. And so we were looking at how, A lot of rejection. Exactly. And and Seligman's work was showing in those years how the um, salespeople were explaining um, their successes or failures predicted, uh, sorry, predicted um, who stayed in the industry. So if you're an insurance salesperson and you get... Um, you know, you do a cold call and the person, you know, hangs up on you and your explanation, your attribution is, I, I stink at this. Um, I'm never going to make a sale. You're going to be more likely to leave the industry. If you think, um, you know, I'm, you know, that person's having a bad day, whatever, you know, that's why they hung up on me. You're more likely to stay in the field. Um, and so he was able to predict, um, you know, who was going to stay. And this had great, in the insurance industry had great interest in this because you invest a lot of training um, in new employees. So there were, um, you know, business implications of that. We went into schools and um, interviewed kids around their attributions for various events. You could pr predict which kids were going to become depressed. Um, so, you know, I've been immersed in cognition mm -hmm. since the age of 18. Yeah. Um, and so it was just kind of natural then to continue with that. You have any thoughts about a relationship between something you mentioned earlier with depression, self-loathing, and learned helplessness? So, so a, little, a little bit of a curveball. Not a curveball. I'm just thinking of how to conceptualize, and I'm probably going to ramble. So bring me back to it. So, as you may remember from a few minutes ago, triangle. That's our um, kind of the picture we have of depression. When people are depressed in CBT, we believe they have negative thoughts about themselves. There's your self-loathing, their environment, and their future. So we always start with, if someone's coming into my office and they're saying they're depressed, I'm going to really start to look at what, how are you thinking about yourself? What are you seeing as your strengths? What are you seeing as your challenges, et cetera? So self-loathing is a huge piece of depression. Learned helplessness, I'm going to bring that into it. What is, what is that about? It's about I don't have control. If you go back to Seligman's original work in the 70s with um, dogs getting uncontrollable shock, um, that's what it was all about. I can't fix this. I don't have control. I can't make this better. And that's a huge piece of depression if you think about it um, in terms of cognition, right? It won't get better. There's our future piece of the triangle. I don't have control over my environment in the here and now, depression. It's never going to get better. That's an attribution about the future. And so, yeah, um, not everyone who's depressed has those cognitions of I don't have control, but for a chunk of people, they really do have those thoughts. But not everyone. My understanding from those experiments on learned helplessness is that many of the animals that were uh, conditioned into the learned helplessness um, experiment, if they were shown an escape route, they wouldn't take it. It's almost as if the depression prevented them from seeing what was actually possible. And so that could relate to pessimism, I suppose. Um, th these are huge. There's a there's a huge number of directions this conversation can go in because of that. So, yeah, I don't, I'm not up to date so much on that literature anymore, but you're right. Um, some of those dogs that got that uncontrollable shock initially, they did then try to teach them um, how they could escape the, the paradigm, the, the shock. And, right, they didn't, um, they didn't learn. They didn't take in that information. I, I think there was some other research, though, that um, really worked with the dogs, and somehow they – 
they did some kind of maneuvering where those dogs were able to have new learning and they were able to um, escape the shock. I think it was a whole series of studies. Um, but what we know, though, with CBT for depression is that in a um, we can teach people new skills, slow, methodical. But this is what I also say to a new client. I can sit here forever and tell you how great you are and how wonderful you are. That's that's not going to work. That's not going to change your thinking. It's through the doing, right? So even if we can go back to those dog studies, we, we could tell the dogs it was going to um, they weren't going to be shocked, but they wouldn't believe it. I think in that you know like fifth generation of studies, they taught the dogs literally how to walk through it and then they, they changed their behavior. Like step by step. Exactly. And that's in, incremental change. Exactly. And that's what we um, have in CBT, right? Um, so it's about, um, let's say someone comes into therapy and thinks, um, you know, my, um, I'll never do well in the workplace. All right. So that's a sweeping cognition. Um, we're going to break it down. What can you do differently today. You know, let's let's become detectives. Hmm. Who's someone who's a superstar at your workplace? And we're not doing this to make you feel bad about yourself, but what can we learn from so-and-so? Wow, so-and-so is the first one in the office um, and they volunteer for a range of projects. Okay, so again, not rocket science. If Maybe one homework would be to be like an anthropologist and kind of keep your eye on so-and-so for a few days and see what are they doing that I can then start to do. Right, and that that other person is seeing their therapist and saying, "I think <laughs> someone's watching, someone's me. watching me in the office." Notes. I know, right? We, we keep the industry going, you know. Like that. But so then it's like, "Wow, what's so and so doing?" Um, I can start to do that too. And wow, I'm not as expert. I don't have as much expertise in this piece of it, but I can do this other thing. And so, right, it's incremental change. And wow, I did this, and now next week I can try to do that higher, um, more challenging thing. So gradual, gradual. That's how change happens. Fantastic. And cognitions change then, too. I can do X, Y, and Z. Um, I can learn new things, et cetera. So I think this it was really, really enlightening, especially for me to hear a little bit about your history, the history of CBT. If anyone wanted to find a CBT therapist um, or learn, I guess, about what books to read or what can you recommend? So there's a, um, first of all, it's always about being um, a good consumer, asking the right questions. Um, Specifically, I can recommend a few um, organizations. There's academyofct.org. There's the Beck Institute. Um, These are two organizations that if you go to their websites, they have a range of cognitive therapists literally worldwide at this point. Two other organizations that I like as much um, are abct.org and adaa.org. So it's the Anxiety and Depressive Association of America. There's um, um, the Association of Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies. And there's, yeah, and then there's the Academy of Cognitive Therapy as well as the Beck Institute. So um, people from around the world can go to those sites, um, put in their zip code or city, and find a cognitive therapist. Um, In terms of um, books to read, there's um, the David Burns has written extensively about CBT, so any of his books are terrific. and CBT app that I like is called Mood Notes. Okay. Um, it's you know it's not full robust CBT it's like working with a therapist, but it's it's a quick and easy app that's really um, really easy to use. Um, in terms of being a good consumer, you want to ask not does a clinician, hey, are you a cognitive therapist? But 
Do you give homework? Do you set an agenda? Um, how long typically do patients stay with you? Um, can you explain your philosophy, your theory? Um, and the answers that you get are going to indicate whether this person's a true cognitive therapist or just, you know, saying that they are. Okay. Any sense of whether certain patients are more able to make use of CBT or you would recommend them for more insight-oriented therapy? Because I know some patients I work with have beliefs about CBT that it's not right for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they have difficulty with the idea of changing their thinking. They just have some kind of really stuck belief. H- how do you deal with that kind of resistance? So, well, we wouldn't call it resistance. Um, we would call it they have a belief. Mm-hmm. And so I would propose to a patient like that, let's try an experiment. My job is not to keep you in therapy with me forever. My job, I say to patients, is to get myself, you know, fired kind of, you know, that you have a course of CBT and then you leave. Planned obsolescence. Exactly. And so let's look, if you have this thought that CBT can't be helpful, you know, let's look at your cognitions around it. It's too mechanical. You're going to rush me out of here. You're not going to understand me if we don't talk about my childhood. Those are all hypotheses and we can put them to the test. Um, With some patients, I might say, you know, could there be a little bit of a suspension of disbelief for some time period? Let's say you were going to see your psychiatrist and you weren't sure the medications were going to work. The psychiatrist would probably say, and you all tell me that it might not work overnight. Give it six to eight, maybe not mm-hmm. six to eight weeks. Give it three mm-hmm. to four weeks. Give it six weeks. I would say the exact same thing to a new patient in CBT. Let's try it for a few weeks. Let's see. Um, and... If it's not sticking, if it's not taking, it may not be a match for you. There are plenty of times people will call me, and often I get calls for people who want cognitive therapy because selection bias at this point. But if someone calls me and says, I don't know about the CBT, you know, I can say them. There are other modalities out there. I can recommend a number of colleagues to you because my job is not to fight someone. My job is not to convince them that it's going to work for them. They have to kind of meet me a little bit in the middle or halfway and be willing to give it a shot. If they're completely opposed to it, one, they probably won't waste their time and their money, and you know, if they still wanted to, I might suggest that you see someone else. Great. And how can people find you? Uh, through my website, vickiglahowskiphd.com, if they can spell it. Would you spell it for us, please? <laughs> sure. V-I-C-K-I-G-L-U-H-O-S-K-I. You've done that before. Yes, I have. <laughs> I did not win in the last name, you know, lottery, but um, it certainly stands out. People remember it. Vicki, thank you so much. This was so much fun coming here today. Thanks. Yeah, Yeah, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Doorknob Comments. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of psychiatry or any type of medicine. It's not a substitute for professional and individualized treatment services and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you feel that you may be in crisis, please don't delay in securing mental health treatment. Thanks.